Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Epic Tales podcast, uh, where you are going to hear Melbourne's most incredible untold stories. Okay, so um, this epic tale is very confronting, and uh, we feel it's our duty to give a bit of a warning that the content does um, include uh, abuse uh, and quite a heavy issue, but we think it's really important that we bring it to light because not enough people are talking about it. We we recorded Kadisha's epic tale, and then we all had a chat about it as a team going, look, you know, it's, it, it is quite confronting to mm. listen to. Um, but you brought up the point, you know, this is going on in the community. People don't realise it's actually happening here in Australia. So rather than ignoring it, let's shine a light on it and talk about it. This is Kadisha's epic tale. I think in my head, I actually really thought I was there to be slaughtered. And I remember this feeling to this day. I mean, I couldn't think of any other act that involved a knife and somebody. Jace and PJ's Epic Tales. My name is Khadija Bla, and this is my epic tale. Welcome <laughs> to Epic Tales. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's go back to the beginning where all this started. Where, whereabouts did you grow up? I was actually born in Sierra Leone in the west of Africa. Most people don't know where Sierra Leone is. A couple of years ago, Blood Diamond came out and Leonardo was in it, all hot and sexy. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, Blood Diamond. Pretty much, I think that's the only connection people have to Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone, like most countries in Africa, you know, went through colonization. Actually, we also went through slavery. And then we had a 13-year civil war. So by the age of three, I was actually a refugee. The country I was born in had gone into civil war and I was a child internally displaced in my own home. I remember when I first came to Australia, just really struggling with being hypervigilant, always thinking somebody's going to hurt me or sounds triggering me like, oh my God, is that going to be a bomb? Especially around Christmas when they have the fireworks. The sounds actually sound very similar to gunshots. Most people won't actually Mm. connect the two unless you have heard that most of your life. You were three when the war broke out. What, What sort of conditions were you living in? For me, it felt like we went to bed one day as a kid, safe, had mom, had dad, had family, and then the life I knew just changed. The next thing you're being told, hide under the bed, people are out to kill us, and bombs are dropping outside and not knowing if you're actually going to get out. Having so many of my family members actually lost not know when the next meal was going to be, not knowing if we're going to live to see the next second, let alone be 32, live to be at this age. I actually didn't think that was possible. That's what it felt like. We were internally displaced for probably five to or more so years, and then we finally got out and we ended up in Gambia, in what I call an unofficial refugee camp. And it was there that I actually experienced this act that would go on to change my life. What age were you at this point? I was nine. Nine. My mom came home one day and said to me and my sister, you know, we're going on a holiday. 
And we're looking at her like we're refugees. Don't actually go on a holiday. What are you talking about? But in my culture, you know, we have a hierarchy. After God is your mom. They, they can do no wrong. Don't mess with the mamas. Okay? Yeah, no, that, don't you, talk you, back you're going to get an ass whooping. That's what you're going to get, <laughs> yeah, an right. ass whooping. Yeah. Right? So we thought, okay, makes no sense. Why would we go on a holiday? There's nowhere to go, but we will follow you. We got into this car, we drove for hours and ended up in a village. And I'm still wondering what's going on, why are we here? The whole time you're driving there, you don't have a conversation about why nope. you're going there? We're still sticking with we're going on a holiday. And who was in the car? <laughs> my mum, myself and my sister. And so you arrived there? We're still trusting my mum because, you know, what? that's what you do. Children trust their caregivers. That is really an important point to remember in this story. We trust our caregivers. Their job is to protect and provide for us. So we have no reason to doubt them. You, your mum and your sister have now driven for a number of hours and you finally arrived at a little village. From the moment we got to this remote place, I felt a sense of doom because there was nobody else around. This old lady comes out from a hut and she starts to talk to my mum. I remember feeling very scared because she looked scary. You know, when your gut is telling, even as a child, I don't feel safe, I don't feel safe, I don't feel safe. She talked to my mom, didn't really get the most of the conversation. It made no sense. She goes back inside the hut and comes out with an orange, rusty knife. I actually really thought I was there to be slaughtered. When something is that rusty metal, it means it's dirty. It hasn't been cleaned. But then I'm thinking why she's holding a knife. There's just a lot of sense of confusion because nothing is adding up. The next thing I knew, my mom is moving me, dragging me along to the next hut. At that point, can you remember thinking, I'm not sure what's going on here, but I'm, I'm not going to go along with it? I think in my head, I actually really thought I was there to be slaughtered. It's probably what I really... And I remember this feeling to this day. What other possible thing will she be doing? I mean, I couldn't think of any other act that involved a knife and somebody. Your mum pulls you along to this other hut. What do you see when you first walk in? Inside it was bare. It just had a mat. There was just a mat, nothing else, just a mat. My mom just took my clothes off, and now I'm just like, okay, what is going on? I'm confused. And then she pins me down on the floor with her full body. Do you remember saying anything to your mum? To be honest with you, I think there was a level of shock there was a level of confusion. I struggled, but not so much in words, as much as just struggling to get her off me and make her stop what she's doing. Khadija, what happens next? (sighs) Well, she has me pinned on the floor. Her full body is on top of me. I am now struggling and actually telling her I want to get up. This will be probably the first couple of words I will now say in this situation. I wanted to get up. I said, Mommy, get off me. I wanted her to get off me. She wouldn't get off me. Now the old lady enters the hut. She comes towards me, and I am clear in my mind she's there to slaughter me. But she doesn't. She doesn't come towards my neck. She slides down my body and gets between my legs. She grabs flesh, and then the rusty knife connects. And she starts to cut away. 
I am screaming. I am trying to get my mom off me. I am begging her to make it stop. It doesn't. You can only imagine what a rusty knife feels mm. on flesh. Because she's trying to cut off my clitoris. She's trying to cut off one set of my outer lips. I passed out, cried, woke up. She's still going. She's still cutting away. My body's like, make this stop going into overload with the amount of pain I was under. And at some point, it stopped. When she was done, she stopped and threw away the flesh across the room, got off me, and I was left lying there, confused, hurt, and couldn't make sense of what had just happened to me. I would spend a week in a bathtub full of dead oil with herbs, apparently to help heal. That just seared my skin. So then we went to part two of the pain. I am so, so sorry that you had to go through that, particularly at the age of nine, at any age. I cannot even imagine how traumatic that would have been. It really was. It still is. It, it, it is. It was violent. It was physical assault on a child. And I think what makes it even more traumatizing is that it was orchestrated by the person who should protect me the most yeah. in the world. Did your mother comfort you in any way? Did she say it's okay now? She said I was a woman now. Wow. That was it. So how many years after that event did you move to Australia? Probably two years, not long at right. all, because we had applied for refugee status and we were told Australia was going to take us in and we're like, where the bloody hell is Australia? <laughs> <laughs> what was the moment that you discovered that this didn't actually happen to other girls? It was when I started volunteering for an organisation called Women's Health Statewide and they did a lot of work around women's health, HIV, pregnancy. And they actually had a programme called the Female Genital Mutilation Programme. I actually went there to do my resume because my mom just assumed every organisation could help you with your resume. So I accidentally actually started volunteering for the FGM programme. Still have no idea what this word meant. So I would go in, help the lady with her training and, uh, and workshops. One day I was packing up her brochures and I came across a couple of diagrams that had the different types of what is known as female genital mutilation. I'm looking at it and going, why does this seem so familiar? What, what is it? And the more I look at it, the more I realize it actually was a picture of me. How did that make you feel in that moment? Were you really angry? Were oh, you confused? Girl, I can still remember that very vividly. I'm looking at this. You know, you see a lot of diagrams over the course of your life. I've seen different pictures of different things. Nothing had ever made me feel this way. And then came the memories rushing back. I could feel the pain again. And then this resounding question. my mom do that to me so now I knew I was different other people were not like me this wasn't normal whatsoever well, I think I had to confront my mama and this is how the conversation went mom why did you mutilate me 
She's like, what are you talking about? You know, female genital mutilation. She has no concept of the words, just like I had. I'm like, you know, when you had me cut down there, she said, female circumcision? She said, oh, it was my job. It was my job as your mom to do this. It had to be done for you to belong, for you to be normal, for you not to be out here having sex with everyone, for you to have control over your sexuality. She thought she had empowered me because in that cultural context, if I hadn't had FGM, because almost, what, 98% of everyone in my community has had FGM, I would be abnormal, not belong, be considered dirty. My mom also was a victim of FGM. Yeah. yeah. She knew nothing else. Yeah. She was a victim of a patriarchal culture. My mom is actually not the problem in this. She's a perpetrator of something that has been sold to so many that women need to be less. Doesn't make it okay. Like I've told her numerous times, doesn't make it okay. But sometimes we can bond over that shared experience. Yeah. But like I said to her that ultimate day, this ends with me. When we know better, we must do better, mm. no more. You are now fighting that here in Australia. Is it is it that common here in Australia? Oh, it definitely is. I have been really? fighting female genital mm. mutilation for 19 years. Wow. There have been three successful prosecutions that most people don't even know about. In Brisbane, just early this year, there was a woman who was convicted of FGM. FGM is illegal in every state in Australia. But we have 200,000 women and girls just like me who are survivors of FGM who live in Australia. 11 girls a day are at risk of this form of child abuse. Wow. We know of girls being cut in Australian housing trust complexes in New South Wales. We know a woman who charges $2,000 to do this. We know a clinic in Shepparton that does male circumcision, but under the table will mutilate little girls. People will find anyone, and you don't need a doctor, you don't need a health professional. For guys, obviously, it's probably more commonly accepted in society, male um, circumcision. Do you think that that's okay? No. I think children, their bodies should be respected unless there's a medical reason for intervention. I don't Mm. think it's genitals of any form should actually be cut. When people get old as adults, they can make informed Mm. choices about their bodies. But when they're little, they can't consent. Consent is the key word here. A boy cannot consent to having his foreskin cut off. I I did not consent to, to having my clitoris cut off. But the difference, though, between male circumcision and female genital mutilation, I think we need to understand is that the reasons and the intent are also very different. With FGM, they say patriarchal, nasty, evil intention of cutting off the sexuality of women and girls, saying they're not entitled to pleasure, saying that they should not have body autonomy because somehow their sexuality is a threat. FGM is done usually in conditions that just leave you with such health, lifelong health side effects. You could have a child with incontinence. We're talking about a seven-year-old, eight-year-old with incontinence. You could suffer infertility, sexual dysfunction, post-traumatic stress disorder. You could even catch HIV if it's done in a group setting. The same cannot be said of male circumcision. All are unacceptable. But we must remember the gender nature of these two acts. Though, and remember the sexism, mm. inherent sexism in female genital mutilation. Inherently. It, it's the source of it, basically. Yeah. I know it wouldn't have been easy for you to share your story. So thank you. Um, also, I can't imagine it would be easy 
I suppose reliving it, being an advocate. T- talking about it all the time, this. it must yeah. be. It must almost be a bit of a contradiction. It must be therapeutic. Um, but also traumatic at the same time. It actually is. It's a catch-22. Yeah. It's a double-edged sword yeah. in that it is therapeutic to own my story and my experience. So much of what happens with sexual violence, child abuse, and any form of violence is that it's the shame and the stigma yeah. and the silence that actually allows it to continue. But when we, as survivors, are able to have a safe space to share our stories, we actually take back our power. We also validate so many other people who go through different experiences and feel like they're alone. By sharing my story, those 200,000 other women and girls know they're not alone. It also says that their lives actually matter. Their experience actually matter. And for the 11 girls a day who are at risk, it says they also matter, that they are deserving of protection like every other child in Australia should be deserving of it. Oh, Khadija, thank you so much for um, shining the light on such an incredibly important issue that I think a lot of people just don't even realise how bad it is here in Australia. So thank you so much for lending your voice to this cause. Oh, no problem at all. And before I leave, I really just wanted to say a couple of things. For an Australian audience listening, they may assume I am talking about just a Muslim woman, an African woman, Middle Eastern woman, Asian woman. I'm actually also talking about Anglo blonde, blue-eyed girls who are actually mm. at risk of FGM. I'm talking about the husband stitch, women going to have babies and being given extra stitches so they're tight for their husband. Mm. I'm actually also talking about labiaplasty for girls under the age of 18 who tend to be actually Anglo girls being forced to actually go through the surgery because they're told that their labia and their lips just don't look like porn stars or tucked in. So this is actually across our society, across race and religion and sexuality. We're talking about intersex surgeries out here as well. Kids, you know, having that done to them without their consent. So I want to leave on the note that do not think that this Mm. is a racialized topic. But to end on a positive note, I founded the Desert Flower Center that offers treatment and support to women impacted by everything I've talked about. You don't have to suffer in silence. There is no shame. Contact me on my social media. I'm easy to find and I'm always up at all hours of the night ready to support. We deserve to have healing and to deserve to thrive. And we can't do that when we're suffering. We can't do that when we live under the shroud and the cloud of feeling not worthwhile. So my center offers treatment, counseling, support. And if you just need a ear to listen to whatever your experience is, I am here. We're not alone. We can do this together. Thank you. And just a reminder, if you or anyone you know needs help, uh, you can always give Lifeline a call on 13 11 14.